0: Welcome, to everyone, to the short-run cost section of microeconomics. This is Dr. Terry Elin coming to you from home to wherever you are. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the economic ride. So the first thing that we have to understand here in this whole section of the next few chapters that relates to businesses, costs, and then the different market structures out there is regardless of the type of business that we're dealing with, there's always this goal of profit maximization, whether you're a non-for-profit firm or your private institution or you're an incorporated company, there is this profit maximizing goal. I've worked for a non-for-profit organization before, and even though we're not trying to make profit, if we're catering to our members, we want to try to create as many services as possible with a set amount of money. So, regardless of how you see it, you want to try to minimize your cost of producing a certain level of output or a certain level of services. So that's the first kind of baseline. And then if you recall from the the section on elasticity, there's that whole discussion about how to maximize um, total revenue. And in the case of a downward sloping demand curve, we'll get to different types of demand curves when we look at the market structures. But overall, in that section there, we were looking at maximizing total revenue, but maximizing total revenue is really just relevant when you don't have any production costs. Maximizing total revenue when you have certain costs associated to producing those goods or services may not be as relevant. So here in this chapter, we're gonna start incorporating the cost side of things, which will allow us afterwards to start looking at profit maximization. So the thing that we have to keep in mind when we talk about costs and economics is that there is a difference between economic costs and accounting costs. And that big distinction between the two is that in economic costs, we take into account everything that accountants take into account. However, we also look at the time costs. So if you are someone working for a company earning 100000 a year and you decide to start your own business and work for yourself, you can't just not take into account your opportunity cost, that time cost that is involved for working the same amount of hours as somewhere else. So all of those kind of implicit costs are taken into account in economics, which if we jump forward will lead to the situation where if you are operating and you have zero economic profit, that is not necessarily a bad thing. Zero accounting profit would be a bad thing for, like, if you were to live this for many, many years and not just in that initial kind of setup phase, because you would always be spending the same amount of money that's coming in. You're not keeping any money that you could pay yourself off as the owner of the company. Well, with zero economic profit, that would be the situation that you've took all your revenues in, you've paid for all your expenses, and you also paid your own time for all that effort that you put into the company, and you're not making any excess profit. So you're working, let's say it's a situation that you're working the same amount of hours as you would be working for someone else, the same stress level, the same everything, and after you've paid for all your expenses and you've gathered all your revenue, The amount of money that you could pay yourself is exactly the same as what you would be paid for an equivalent job in the workplace so that's the first big distinction which will help us understand that whole idea of zero economic profit is not necessarily a bad thing and it just keep that in mind in the future and that time cost when you think about it may change throughout your life now as a student i might offer you or you might decide to start up a business even though that business uh, only pays you like 10,000 a year or 20 or 30,000 a year for a certain amount of hours worked. But in the future, if ever you do a medical degree and uh, we ask you, well, do you wanna quit your medical job to run that same business you're running as a BU student? Well, in that situation, you would probably say, well, I'm not interested. Like that 20 or 30,000 a year uh, to run this business is just not sufficient anymore. Like if I take into account my time, I'm just not, I could get paid way more doing something else, which wasn't the case earlier on in your life. So it's just something that could change over time. So in this chapter, then you have a series of tables, you have a series of graphs, and I'll just kind of go through the, the big lines here just to cover what's really important to keep in mind. So in this whole chapter, we talk about production functions first and then cost functions later. Cost functions is really what's gonna be used in all the following chapters. It's the things that you really have to understand. But to understand well the cost functions, you have to understand well the production functions and the implications there. So as I introduced this chapter, I talked about the idea that here we're dealing with short run costs. And the next chapter will be about long run costs and we'll see the distinctions there. But the big distinction between short run and long run will be that it's not a set amount of time, it's that in the short run, there are certain factors of production that are fixed. So the classic example I give is if you're running the, the subway in Lenoxville and you're the manager of that company, even if you heard that this, um, this big star was coming to Lenoxville and uh, a lot of people would gather to see this, this person perform, like you can't just decide to triple the size of the subway and the snap of a finger. You can't decide to have more ovens, more everything. You could decide to have all of your staff that normally are spread out throughout the week come and work on that specific day because the you could kind of you have access to them. they're trained, and uh, they might not like it because they'd like to go see the concert. But you have access to that. You could always employ more people, or if you see it coming and it's in a few weeks, you could kind of train a few people to do some of the basic tasks involved in making subs and paying and cleaning and everything else. However, you can't just triple the size of the subway really rapidly. You can't just set up all of that because that requires time. So as soon as something requires time, it's not really a quick process. It's gonna be more in that long run planning phase. So coming back to this idea that you have a fixed size for a subway. Well, based on that, you have certain things that are fixed. So in this case here, the amount of ovens, the space and everything else, even though it could be like summertime and you have access to the outdoors to serve people, and so on, you still have a fixed amount of space inside. You could still maybe get a few extra ovens for that event. But uh, you're you're still limited. So based on that, because you're limited, we're going to face this concept called diminishing marginal product of labor, which means that if you were to hire a series of clones, like perfect clones, we're not saying that you're hiring the best workers first and then you're stuck with the bad workers at the end. You have a series of clones that you can hire, like 50 different clones, and you choose to hire between... 0, and 50, and they're perfectly identical. Well, the production function would tell you in this situation where you have a fixed space is that you'll have a situation at first that going from one to two workers, will probably lead to more than double the production level that you can have in a day, like more than double the amount of subs you can produce and sell in a day's time. And why is that? Well, it's because of this concept called specialization. Because of the idea that instead of having this person who's constantly taking the orders, getting the bread, getting everything sorted, and then having the person pay, and every time they pay, they have to take their gloves off because they pay the detached money, and then they, they have to put new gloves on and so on and so forth. It's kind of a long process of gloves on, gloves off. It's just more efficient. You could produce a lot more and sell a lot more if you had two people working because one could be tasked to doing certain things and the other one could be tasked to doing other things. And you think about any other business as well. You're producing T-shirts or anything else. If you just had one worker in the whole factory, probably by having a second worker, you could more than double. Your production level okay so as soon as you're more than double like you're getting more products per worker that is what we call the specialization phase you're gaining more production by hiring like just the right amount of workers and then afterwards if you want to keep on hiring more and more workers because you have this big event and you know that the cost of those workers is inferior to what uh extra profits that they could bring you extra revenue that they could bring you Well, then at some point, you're going to have these what we call diminishing returns, which is for the first few workers, they're going to add on a lot of productivity. If we look at the extra amount of subs or the extra amount of T-shirts that each of these people, each of these clones adds is going to be kind of like good and big numbers. And then when those numbers start dipping down more and more and more, you have this situation that we call diminishing marginal product of labor. And if you just imagine, like if any of you ever worked in a kitchen, just imagine that you have a fixed kitchen size. And uh, at first you have like a a chef, a sous chef, an extra helper, and maybe someone doing the dishes. But then you're like, we need to produce a lot more. So we're going to have like four chefs, eight sous chefs, 20 helpers, and like five people doing the dishes. Well, because there's just so many ovens and so much space to work, those extra people, even though they're completely identical, they're perfect clones, they might not be that productive because they're gonna be stuck with very small space to work. They won't be able to maneuver so well, even though they prepared more subs in a separate room. If all the ovens are taken, they can't really do much. So that is the whole idea behind diminishing marginal product of labor. This only exists because we cannot expand the kitchen size that is the short run problem. So when we deal with the long run in the next chapter, diminishing marginal product of labor is no longer an issue when you could change the size of your restaurant and everything else in that planning phase when you're projecting the long run. You don't face that problem because you could always expand the size and the amount of equipment you have access to. So that kind of talks about this production phase. And if you kind of look at it, you have your different amount of employees you could hire and the amount of production that you could have and uh, that kind of shape that you'll see will relate to um, the specialization, diminishing marginal product to labor. But then afterwards, when we move to the costs, well, the costs such as the marginal cost, which is one of the more important costs that you'll see, will also have the same kind of influence. In the sense that those t-shirts, if I look at the extra cost for every extra t-shirt produced, well, that extra t-shirt at first might not be very costly to produce because by hiring that extra worker, it's making things much more efficient because we're dealing with specialization. So the marginal cost may be going down. But then at some point, because I have these diminishing returns, it's possible that with these diminishing returns, I'll have to costs going up and up and up and up to producing one more t-shirt or one more sub because i hired an extra person and all he did is contribute an extra sub or two per hour whereas my first few workers were able to produce like 20 or 30 subs in an hour so that kind of relationship still holds it exists they're kind of like mirror relationships and it's easier to see visually so i'll let you guys look at the videos to figure that one out but overall You have that specialization that diminishing marginal product of labor phase. So then afterwards what you hints to make sure you don't uh, screw up on here is that you have a marginal cost and then the other costs that we're interested are averages. So average total cost, average fixed cost, average variable cost. Those are the three other curves that we're going to be interested in. So one hint on calculation that people make mistakes on and one hint on doing it graphically. uh, So the hint on how to uh, calculate it, the big mistake that some people make is when we call about average variable costs or any of the averages, which is variable cost divided by something to make an average, well that's something has to be the quantity of output, the quantity of goods produced. Because you're trying to see on average what is the variable cost involved in producing a teacup and producing a sub and producing something else. You're trying to see on average what is the variable cost involved in that specific product. You produced a 1,000, well on average, if we're talking about average total cost, well what was the cost per unit of producing that specific good on average so here instead just saying well the first few were kind of cheaper because I was getting specialization and the last one's more more expensive no 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 let's just think about it on average and then when you look at the actual curve on the graph you could see well initially the average total cost may be very high it dips down and then it goes back up at the end that's the typical shape the typical kind of u-shaped involved but that's what we're interested in so make sure in any average cost that you are dividing by output and not by a quantity of labor, which is an input. It is confusing because you can refer to both of them as a Q because it's a quantity of output or quantity of input. But just keep in mind, if you have to do this in a table format and you have to calculate multiple, well, if you use quantity of labor, it's gonna be uninteresting because you're going to have your variable cost which is let's say you pay someone $15 an hour and you hire one well that's $15 if you hire two it's 30 you hire three it's 45 well if you divide that by the amount of workers well you'll have 15 divided by one 30 divided by two 45 divided by three you'll get 15 in all cases which is going to be like oh this is just the same number all the time well that doesn't add any value all you're saying is We figured out that the variable cost for every extra worker is $15. And you know that from the initial story, which will be you can hire as many like 0 to 10 workers at $15 an hour. You already have that information. So to recompute it doesn't have any value. But if you can compute, if I hire this amount of workers, this is my variable cost per unit or my total cost per unit. That has a lot more value. So that's the thing you have to watch out for. And the second thing, graphically speaking, the marginal costs uh, will always intersect with average variable cost and average uh, total cost. Not average fixed cost; it's a separate story. But with the other two, average total and variable costs, those will always intersect with MC at its minimum point. So I said average total cost and average variable cost have a U-shaped. Well, the bottom of that U intersects with marginal cost. So don't draw it to the side because you're going to lose points. And this is mathematically just the way it works in the sense that let's say you have a current average of 80% in school and you get a marginal grade of 85. Well, that means that because your new grade is above your average, it means that it's going to start pulling up your average. Well, that would be the same. If you look at it, once again, this is easier to understand and interpret with the videos by seeing it, but you have to remember that it intersects at its lowest point. So you really got to make sure that you understand this chapter well, because and you know how to draw them well, and you understand the implications behind them, because these cost curves will be used not only in this chapter, they'll be used when we cover perfect competition, when we cover monopoly and when we cover monopolistic competition, we're going to be using the actual curves, all of those cases. So make sure you understand them and you're able to apply them as best as possible. So I'll leave you guys to this. And in the next segment, we're going to look at the planning process of the long run cost curves.